Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kanisha Grant, who's going to talk to us about her excellent new book, The Great Migration and the Democratic Party, Black Voters and the Realignment of American Politics in the 20th Century. This book was published in 2020 by Temple University Press and provides a really rigorous and fascinating exploration of an understanding of how the Great Migration contributed to changes in party politics throughout the United States, but particularly um, in Northern politics. But I'm going to let Kinesia tell us a little bit about that. Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast, Kinesia. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this particular project? Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I am a professor of political science, an assistant professor of political science for the the scholars listening at Howard University, who is currently up for tenure, so should be getting a a nice letter any day now. Um, I study American politics with particular interest in Black migration and its impact on politics. And this project, which is about the Great Migration, um, is essentially tracing the impact of how the move of many African Americans from southern states, um, both urban and rural areas, into northern cities reflects a lot of um, your particular work. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in um, the topic of migration politics? Sure. I actually was first interested in parties. And so I went to Syracuse for my PhD, where my advisor was Christy Anderson. And another person I took lots of classes from and spent time with was Jeff Stonecash. And Jeff Stonecash was working on a book kind of in the spirit of Burnham about the history of parties over the 20th century. And uh, Christy has a book about the Democratic Party and how immigrants shaped the Democratic Party and kind of changed the way we think about who was in that party and the realignment there. And so those things together, uh, in addition to a conversation with my godmother, whose name is Phyllis Green, birthed this book. And so in short, I was reading about the parties and reading about the changes in the parties. And it seemed like there was some note about race in the slavery sections of the writing. And then race didn't come up again until the 1960s. Um, To the extent that it did come up, it might come up in some conversation about the Great Depression. But it seemed to me that there was a really big thing happening uh, in the story of America that was not present in these writings. And so Christie's book is important because it helps us think about how uh, folks went into the Democratic Party. And she argues that what looks like conversion of white Americans into the Republican Party was actually mobilization of immigrants who came to the United States and were mobilized by parties. And so I wondered if it was the case or if it could be possible that 
the same thing could be happening for Black people. One of the cities she covers is Chicago, and she writes about how the parties were mobilizing immigrant voters in Chicago, which kind of jogged the memory of a conversation I had uh, with Phyllis Green, who I mentioned earlier, who had asked me at the outset of my degree program, was I going to do any work about the Great Migration? And I told her no, because I think it made sense to do that as a political scientist. Uh, but as I was thinking about like how we answer this question about like how Black folks get into the party, I was reminded of that conversation and thinking about Christie's work about mobilization and thought that, you know, white immigrants weren't the only people who showed up in the United States, in the North, in the United States and got mobilized by parties. Black people had the same story, but I was very surprised to find that folks had not focused on the movement of Black people throughout the nation and how that contributed to the party change. And and in in your book, The Great Migration and the Democratic Party, you pay attention to the movement, as you say, of African-Americans from the South to the North, the famous Great Migration. You're also, you, you keep tipping your hat at the fact that there is also now a re-migration yeah. um, to back to um, some of the bigger urban areas in the Sun Belt um, or the South. Uh, and that this is also sort of changing around party dynamics once again. Um, can you talk a little bit about first the, the sort of, of impetus with regard to moving into the northern the northern states um, and how that that sort of figured into black political participation and possibly also what the re-migration may be doing in a kind of parallel way. Yeah, thank you for that question. The I think second chapter, one of the chapters is all about black migration. And uh, yeah, the second chapter. And I did that because I I just kind of felt like I did not know about Black migration over the history of the United States. And I think that uh, I knew the Great Migration existed, but it was the only one I ever heard anybody talk about. But there were all these other smaller migrations of Black people uh, where Black people are moving for kind of the same reason. So some of those migrations are involuntary, where people have to move and they are, they don't have choices about it, but some of them are voluntary. And I thought that that was very interesting and curious. And for the Great Migration, as people are making decisions about how to move, many of the writings about the Great Migration suggest that folks move because they wanted equal opportunity for work, which I think is right as a dominant narrative about why folks are moving during the Great Migration. But some of the people talk specifically about moving because they want to be citizens with equal rights as white people, and they don't think they they can accomplish that in the North. And so they have a notion of themselves as people who should be able to vote, as people who should be able to hold political office, and who don't have the ability to do that in the South, and so want to go to a place where they think they can do that. And so the book opens with a discussion of three people. Uh, One of them is a legislator in North Carolina and a Republican legislator in North Carolina who's doing well. Uh, And then the Republicans decide that they would prefer to be uh, in coalition with uh, populists. Populists don't support Black interests and don't like Black participation at the time. And so they end up 
parting ways, which means that the black elected officials in the Republican Party also don't really have a home anymore. And so that person's name is Edward Austin Johnson. He leaves uh, North Carolina to go to New York, where he organizes in politics and gets elected to office like not very long after he got there. And so I, I thought the Great Migration was very interesting because it's one of the instances, not the only one, but one of the instances where Black people are moving with an affirmative kind of position about wanting to participate in politics and knowing that the move will be a political one. I'm glad you asked about current issues in migration. Uh, the reason I'm tipping my hat to it so much is because I, like I think many scholars, am thinking about the next thing. And I think the next book will be about uh, how current issues in migration shape politics. And one of the things I think is really important to think about in that regard is uh, how the return migration of Black people from the North back to the South, uh, or from the North to the South in the first place, many of these folks who are moving are native-born Northerners going to the South, has the potential to change uh, at least presidential politics. But certainly if it's changing presidential politics, it's probably also changing state and local politics too. And so I'm tipping my hat there because I think that's really important. I don't uh, think that South Carolina is one of the states I will be focused on. But if you think about the state of the 2020 Democratic primary race and that it was open and it was kind of unsure until you get this landslide victory in South Carolina where Black people are present and voting in large numbers. And then you see the rest of the South kind of fall into place with Black folk in the background, kind of uh, making that movement go. I think that there is a little bit of evidence there to suggest that we should definitely be thinking about Black folks' migration from the North to the South and how that will change politics in the South. And again, you talk about the fact that a lot of the folks who are moving from the North to the South are moving to Houston and Atlanta um, and Charlotte and to these major population centers that also have um, expanding economies and diverse economies. Um, so it's it's likely that they will continue to grow also as um, political centers in the country. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think the other thing to note about that is the people who are moving. So in the Great Migration, when you look at the education of the folks who moved, when you look at um, kind of their civic participation, they look like the kind of person who will vote most often. They go to church. They have been to college. They at least finished high school. I think the same is true in this return migration. The people who are moving are kind of a selective group of people who we would assume have the most likelihood to participate in politics. And so not only are these places going to be important economically, uh, important population centers, I think they're also going to be important because, or the Black populations are going to be important because the, the folks who are going there are most likely to participate in politics. Um, and, and before we get to the, the conclusion where you talk about um, Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum um, running for governors of these two sort of complex states of Georgia and Florida, um, I did want to ask you about the focus of the book, which is on the migration to three particular cities of African-Americans during the course of, you know, 30, 40, 50 years um, and and how those cities sort of shifted and changed as a result. Can you talk about the three cities that you chose and why you selected them um, to be the focus of the research in this book? 
sure. I actually chose five cities. This book is uh, a cousin, I'll say, of my dissertation. <laughs> um, <laughs> where you, if you go and see the dissertation, you'll you'll understand. Well, if you've written a dissertation and they're written a book, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so it's a cousin of the dissertation. And in the dissertation, I also study Philadelphia and Los Angeles. And Philadelphia and Los Angeles didn't make it for a couple of reasons. Los Angeles doesn't make it because in my reading of Great Migration stuff, I'm consistently frustrated as a student because nobody is talking about the whole migration. Folks are either talking about the first wave of the migration uh, and their work is ending like before World War II. And then we got books that deal with the second wave of migration that picks up after the war but no books are writing about the whole thing. And I decided being young and ambitious that I wanted to do the whole great migration um, (laughs) before I really knew what that meant. And so as I'm getting down the road, trying to do the whole great migration, I can't do LA, which I know pretty early on because folks don't really go there until the second wave of the migration. So LA is eliminated pretty early and Philadelphia is eliminated because I need to do an East Coast city, I think, and I can't do a story about the Great Migration without doing New York. Uh, so I didn't think Philly would be a big value added. And again, it's 50 years. I'm looking at 1915 um, and 1965. And so I just thought it would be much too much to have more than three cities and to tell the story of the three cities well. And so New York is a city because one of the places I study, because it has the largest number of um, migrants. If you are moving in the Great Migration, it's a very high likelihood that you're going to end up in New York. Um, And so you can't tell the story without the story of New York, I think. Likewise, Chicago is a very important city in Great Migration history, has a very large percentage of Black people who move to that place, different from New York, which has large numbers. uh, But it's, it's a little bit harder to see Black folks in that population because there are so many folks in the population in New York. Uh, So Chicago is kind of the epicenter of the Great Migration, one of the places that people talk about as the mecca of the Great Migration. And so you kind of can't do a Great Migration book without Chicago. Chicago is like what Atlanta is today. If you talk to young Black people or Black people in general about like, where do you want to live? They tell you stories about Atlanta. They used to tell stories about D.C., but that's kind of fading in popularity these days. Um, The other city is Detroit. And so Detroit gets to stay because it is in a different location, but it also has a different um, government structure. And so I wanted to figure out what would happen. I'm telling a story about how parties change. Detroit doesn't have parties. And so not only is it in the Midwest, uh, like Chicago is, but it it gets to stay because I want to see what happens when there are no parties present, because I'm kind of making this claim that parties are going to Uh, try to activate these populations, or I go into it with this idea that parties will try to activate these populations. So I want to see what happens when there are no parties present. And, and so the, the sort of thrust, as you say, of the book is really looking at how parties operated with regard to this influx of voters um, as they came to these cities in particular, um, and as they sort of pursued active political participation, not just as voters, but also pursuing appointments, patronage appointments, and elected office. Um, So my next question is, what did you find? (laughs) Okay, so I I went into it kind of super gung-ho, like, yeah, Great Migration happens, party's going to be like, yes, Black people, let's do it. And they were not. Uh, (laughs) And I don't know 
why I was so gung ho about it that way. But the the Christy, uh, my dissertation advisor, and Tom Keck, who was also on my committee at Syracuse, kept being like, "Yo, the story's nuanced. Like, just slow down, tell the nuanced story." Um, <laughs> And so this the book is a cousin of the dissertation because older Kenesha is able to kind of slow down and look at it and think, okay, well, in some instances, they're doing a good job of letting Black people participate, of giving patronage, of making policies that help them. Um, But in that same situation, I'm thinking about Chicago here, where they're giving them all these things, they are not like actually able to do politics. So you're elected to office, if you can imagine, elected to city council, but the mayor in Chicago runs that city, full stop. And so you might think that you, since you're elected to office, can like have power and and make things happen for your people, but you're really kind of limited in that. And you can do as much as the machine tells you you can do uh, in Chicago. I expected kind of going into it that Chicago would be the place with the most elected officials and the like most political power for black people. Chicago does have the most elected officials, but that story is very complicated in that that election, that symbolic representation doesn't always turn into substantive representation. Sometimes they're just figureheads. I was surprised to find in New York that there was also, I wasn't surprised to find there was a party machine. There's a party machine in New York. Uh, that's very complicated because there are so many parties and you can run on multiple party lines at the same time. Uh, but the the party there, because it is so fragmented, has to pay attention to Black voters a little bit more than they do in Chicago. In Chicago, the Democratic Party is the only show in town and there is nothing else. In New York, there are all these third parties. There's this reform movement. Uh, there are factions within the Democratic Party. And for all those reasons, I think that the New Yorkers do a better job of incorporating Black interest than the folks in Chicago do. Detroit was very interesting in that we think of Detroit today as like a very Black place, but it takes a little while for the population of Detroit to kind of turn over and become majority Black um, because it doesn't really happen until white flight happens in that city. Also keep in mind that there is no formal party structure in Detroit, as I mentioned earlier. And so there is no kind of organization of people other than the union that's helping folks do politics. But the union proves problematic because at the same time that Black folks are moving in large numbers to the North to settle in Detroit, white folks are leaving the South to do the same thing. And many of the white folks who are leaving the South to settle in Detroit have very racist ideas about how the world should work. And they carry those ideas to Detroit. And even though they work shoulder to shoulder with Black people, and in some instances are paid the same amount of black as Black people, uh, and are in unions eventually, after the unions desegregate with Black people, they refuse to do politics with Black people. This idea that um, they don't want Black people in their neighborhoods takes hold in Detroit. And so where we would think that we might see some economic politics happening. We might see some liberal folks get elected to office because the union leaders have suggested that it should be that way doesn't happen. And so Black folks don't really get even symbolic representation until almost the end of my period of interest uh, and certainly don't get any substantive representation in the way that they will want also until almost the end of my period of interest. 
And so in in sort of exploring the way that the African Americans were integrated or or to some degree um moved or pushed their way into politics in these three areas. How did that broadly impact the Democratic Party as a entire party? I'm glad you asked that. So the the other reason that this is a cousin and not a not a I don't know sister or twin is because I didn't include the the a national conversation in the book. And the dissertation includes a national conversation. The national conversation came out of the book and is published in the Du Bois Review also in 2020. Um, And so before I I talk about the national piece, I want to talk about why I didn't put it in the book. All the time when I was reading about um, Black politics at this time and parties at this time, the focus seemed to be entirely about the party as an organization, which is fine. Like I know we do institutions, but I thought, and I think I wrote wrote somewhere in the dissertation that I was frustrated that there were no Black people in the story, even though the story was about Black people. And so I sat down to write this and realized that I was about to commit the same, what I thought was an error in my own work that I saw in other folks' work. And I didn't want it to be the case that I produced this whole thing about the Great Migration and the Democratic Party. And I didn't talk about Black people at all. I just talked about white politicians and how white people responded to the Great Migration. And so half of each chapter is about mayors in the cities, most of them white, all of them, all of them white, um, and how they respond to the migration. But the other half of each chapter is about Black people themselves, migrants, what migrants wanted, whether they got elected to office, what they cared about when they were elected to office and that kind of thing. And so I didn't feel like I had enough space to do both those things and have a national chapter without it being kind of scattered. So the national chapter comes out um, and goes into the Du Bois Review. And in short, I argue that the Great Migration influences national Democratic Party considerations because the Democratic Party uh, following FDR is kind of on a downward trajectory after like 1932, which we don't really see because they're still winning and it doesn't really flip until Uh, the 50s, but they know that they are uh, struggling to hold on. And by 1948, we have Democratic strategists saying explicitly that, hey, we need another, we need something else to do. We need to work on our coalitions. And a good way to work on the coalitions might be to reach out to Black people. We get that in the Clifford memo in the 1948 Truman campaign. And so I find that the Democratic Party is very thoughtful about Black people in part because they are looking for ways to win, but also because these great migration centers are also population centers, are also really important to the electoral college. And so if I want to win New York, or if I want to win Illinois, if I want to win Michigan, even today, if I want to win Michigan, I need to do very well in Detroit. If I want to win Illinois, I need to do very well in Chicago. And in the story, who lives in Detroit, who lives in Chicago, Black people. And so this is both a story about building coalitions and trying to do so in a strategic way uh, that allows the presidential candidates to be efficient in their work, getting the most electoral college votes in these places where uh, Black people also live. And they, I don't think they believe that taking positions that will help Black people are going to be very detrimental to their overall position as parties. And so we see them shift a little bit uh, and we see some kind of fighting 
in the party about how liberal they will be and why, depending on where, where you look or which election you view. And and so in in this regard, I also was really intrigued by the way that you talk about how African-Americans became either um, a, a part of the coalition in the cities, as well as, as you say, in terms of elector, national electoral strategy um, and national party strategy. But they also became key elements either to keep in the coalition or to potentially try to um, demonize in in establishing yeah. a different coalition. Can you talk about what you saw in the different cities that you focused on with regard to how that sort of happened and transpired over the the period of time that you're exploring? Yeah, I think Detroit is probably the easiest place to talk about it. So remember, I talked about Detroit not having parties. And so the union and civic organizations kind of come in to organize people in the way that we assume parties might normally do that. So in this story, unions are suggesting to their members that they should vote for liberal candidates, but they, the people, the white people in the unions hesitate to do so. And they get these counter messages from elected officials And in Detroit, I think it was very interesting because they had kind of a very early notion of or version of fake news. So one of the things that they would do was to create these flyers and plaster flyers around the white neighborhoods. And the flyers would say things like Negroes will start to come to your school starting next week. The mayor, the liberal mayor candidate loves Negroes. If you love Negroes, vote for the liberal candidate. And so that would be kind of a a signal to folks who did not like desegregation or did not eventually like a liberal candidate that they should not support that person. And what it had the effect of doing was taking the spotlight off economic issues to think about racial issues, because the political leaders in Detroit realized we can put this whole union thing aside and we can totally sidestep the union's authority and their suggestions if we help white people understand that whiteness is the most important organizing construct. And so in that instance, where we again might expect that folks would vote together because they are in the unions working side by side, they don't do that because they get messages from political leaders uh, that it's more important to protect whiteness and to protect white communities uh, and to be segregated in white communities than it is to do anything else in their politics. And in the other in the other cities, I mean, particularly I was paying attention to Chicago as a Chicago native. I was I was really fascinated by the way that the African-American community um, was very sophisticated in thinking about their support, particularly early on when there was contests between Republican and Democratic mayoral candidates. Yeah, one of the good stories there is Big Bill Thompson. So Big Bill Thompson starts out uh, the period of interest in the early 1900s, about 1915. He's on the city council. And Big Bill Thompson is a good strategist in the sense that he represents an area with a growing Black community. And he makes a decision that he wants to put a playground. The city makes a decision that they are going to build a playground. And he argues the playground should be in his community because he's a good politician. Um, and because he's posturing to Black people. 
And when they ask him why the playground should be in his community, he says that because that's because this is where most of the kids live, which is also true. Uh, but he gets some pushback because the white city council does not want to put this playground in the black community. Um, but Big Bill Thompson is an interesting character because he has kind of a tough relationship with the parties. And so he is trying to suggest um, a loyalty to him and not a loyalty to the parties. And Black people being savvy political participants understand that understand him as a friend. Now, this does this friendship is tenuous at best, but understand him as a friend. Uh, and in one election, he decides that he uh, doesn't No, in one election, he cannot run because he's under investigation. And so in the election where he cannot run, he designates who should run for office. Uh, and the person who's running for office, I think in the story, might be a Democrat. And so he's telling Black people who in this story, in this part of it, are Republicans that they need to go out and vote for this Democrat. And everybody watching thinks, obviously, they're not going to do that, but they do. And they do it because they have a notion of Bill Thompson as their friend. And if he says that I should cross the party line to vote for Democrats this time, then I'm happy to do that. There are also some stories in Chicago um, about mayors who were just not good on racial issues, which was surprising to me, especially as a when I say surprising to me, I mean, like, in my personal capacity, not as a scholar. Uh, I think as a Black person in America, you hear about Chicago and the North in general as this kind of great place to be and life is better. But as a scholar, you find that it's not really uh, all perfect. And so in Chicago, there are a couple stories of mayors who just don't like Black people who are not committed to uh, liberal racial issues. And some of them who are very kind of difficult um, if you don't support Black people. So I think um, one of the stories is about a mayor who gets elected to office, but barely, and doesn't get elected to office because Black people haven't supported him, and Black folks haven't supported him because they haven't made a full transition into the Democratic Party yet. And so his answer to this is that he is going to basically terrorize Black communities so that they know in the next election they have to support him. And so he does all these raids on bars. He does these raids on the numbers game, their lottery at the time. He arrests people randomly. All this to demonstrate to Black folks that they absolutely must support him in the next election, uh, which they do. And and so in comparison to Detroit and Chicago, what was the story with regard to African-American voting communities and political communities in New York City? So New York is interesting because it starts out with this black submachine, which Chicago also has, to be clear. Uh, but the the remember I talked about New York being complicated in that you have the Democratic Party machine, which is a very strong machine, but you also have all these other parties operating at the same time, making demands on the Democratic Party machine and sometimes making demands on reform candidates. And so I found that the biggest problem that Black folks have interacting with politicians there is just kind of getting heard. The, the political structure has been organized such that they can't have political power that's meaningful because their power is distributed um, in a hierarchical manner that means that by the time the decision gets made, whatever they believed or thought or wanted uh, is probably lost. And so you might live in a Black neighborhood, but the person who represents your assembly district may or may not be Black. 
uh, the person who represents you on the council may or may not be black. And even if you got a black person on the council, they may or may not be able to work together with their colleagues to get things accomplished for you. So in some instances, there are stories about how this works out well. Sometimes they're able to get things done, maybe not always as quickly as they want to get them done. I'm thinking about a story about the Harlem Hospital where uh, Black folks are saying, we have a hospital in Harlem where we live. It should be the case that the Harlem Hospital, which serves Black people almost exclusively, could have Black interns, Black doctors, Black nurses. Please just let Black people work in the Harlem Hospital. And so at first, this is kind of met with not in action by political leaders, but eventually political leaders understand that if we want to be, and I should say democratic leaders understand that if they want to continue to win elections, they have to be always careful and thoughtful about reform candidates. Reform candidates are usually more likely to give Black folks the political uh, wins that they want because they are working very hard to build coalitions. Their coalitions don't automatically exist in the way a party's coalition does. And so eventually the Democratic Party seeking to kind of hold off these third parties and these reform candidates start to take on some Black issues. And also Black folks start to get uh, leadership in the party. I'm thinking about J. Raymond Jones, who I think is mentioned in the book, but is not mentioned as an elected official, becomes really important to Democratic Party politics in New York and does a good job of getting at least some of the policies that Black folks are interested in passed in that in that city. And and you use a term which I found fascinating, um, and you you abbreviate it BOP, um, the yeah. Black Balance of Power, um, which you've sort of been talking about in terms of how African American communities respond to politics and and potentially use the capacity that they have as a as a voting block to to um, achieve electoral outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of the black balance of power? Sure. That idea, um, I came into knowledge of it from a book by Henry Lee Moon, which is published, I think, in 1944. Henry Lee Moon works at the NAACP. And he is trying to argue to national political candidates that black voters are important and that they need to political national political candidates, national presidential candidates need to be concerned about black interests and need to make black interests part of their platforms moving forward. And his argument for doing that is that black people are the balance of power in elections. In particular, he argues black people are the balance of power in places that have large electoral college delegations, which is what we talked about a few minutes ago. And so this was the kind of only way I had seen somebody think or talk about Black um, movement during this time. There are some scholars who kind of trouble his idea about uh, Black voters as the balance of power later in the literature, but for the time period, that was the thing. And so I also, in the work, started to see white politicians use that language. They talked about Black voters as the balance of power and said that they had to do things because Black voters were the balance of power. And if they didn't do it, Black people wouldn't come out and vote for them. Therefore, they wouldn't win elections. And so for each of the cities, I wanted to see whether white politicians were right about their assumptions 
that Black people were the balance of power in these cities and wanted to see whether um, maybe it could be possible that they were behaving in the manner that they were behaving because Black people had the ability to change the outcomes of elections. And so for all three of the cities, I construct a balance of power estimate, which kind of counts the number of people who I project might be able to vote in the total population and the number of Black people who would be able to vote in the uh, population of the city. And so if the number of Black people in the city was more than the margin of victory in an election, I suggested that they might be the balance of power in the city and that them being the balance of power in the city might uh, help us understand why mayors acted in the way they did. What I found was that they weren't the balance of power as much as politicians thought they were. And so Black folks were using this language about being the balance of power and suggesting like, hey, we vote on a block and if we don't vote for you, you're not going to win, which in some instances was true especially in uh, Chicago and Detroit, not so much in New York because there's so many people in New York, so many uh, groups of people in New York. Um, But in Detroit, Black people are clearly the balance of power earlier than they actually have political power or earlier than they have folks paying attention to them. But that balance of power does not turn into political power, which brings me to work that comes later in the literature uh, where scholars like Stone are saying, hey, this balance of power thing might fall apart. And it might fall apart in instances where white people are not evenly split. And in, in Detroit, it's the case that white folks are not evenly split because they're making decisions about race instead of making decisions about economics or other kinds of things that might have them be evenly split. And and so I I'm curious, um, given the research, were you surprised by this outcome? Uh, by the time I got to the book, I was not. I the balance of power is a holdover from the dissertation, and I think I had argued enough about it with Christy that I knew um, that it probably wouldn't do what I thought it would do. Um, although I was super attached to it when I was in school. But I kept it anyway, because as I was writing this, I wanted to write it kind of from the perspective I I wanted to. I didn't want to assign things to the politicians. So the politicians in the story are alive between 1915 and 1965. And so I don't want to bring, I don't know, 2016, 2020 ideas to them that they probably don't have. And so I tried to limit my analysis to the things that they had and they said. And so if a politician says, I think black voters are the balance of power and that's why I'm going to do X or Y, uh, then I, I wanted to see whether that was true. And so it, it doesn't perform in the way that I thought it would perform, but I do think it's important kind of in a different direction because it suggests that white politicians are wrong in their strategy. I'm glad that they are doing some things that are helpful to black people Uh, But it is curious that they were very convinced that Black folks were the balance of power, um, even when they weren't. I should add, too, that in the national chapter, excuse me, the national chapter that comes out to be a paper, one of my reviewers is telling me that my um, conception of balance of power is not quite rigorous enough, which I agree with. 
you know how reviews go, agree with eventually. Um, and so I sit down and think about it and pour it over. And I think the reviewer is right um, that just asking whether Black folks or the Black population is the margin of error is not enough because not 100% of Black people are going to su- support any candidate. So in that paper, you'll see that I try to be a little bit more rigorous in my uh, kind of description of the balance of power. And again, at the national level, we hear politicians or read politicians saying explicitly that they think Black folks are the balance of power, but they are actually not the balance of power in many of these instances. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, given that we are, are again, sort of talking about African-Americans, particularly African-American women, as possibly being the balance of power um, in the primaries this particular year, um, you highlight in your conclusion areas that you think need more exploration and research. And one of them in particular is the question of African-American women in politics during this period and subsequently. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the areas that you think could be further developed in terms of understanding the research and the role of African-Americans in in American politics? Yeah, I I could talk all day about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sure, you could. (laughs) I I was stressed. If, If you look at the book, you will see that there are pictures in the book and the pictures are pictures of women. And that's intentional. Um, The pictures are pictures of women because I was stressed that I didn't, I felt like I didn't have time to think about gender in the way I, in the way that it was on my mind. It was on my mind heavily, but I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had time to stop and think about women separately. And so I don't, I still don't think I have time to do that, but I would love to see somebody else think about women migrants or women who are elected to political office in this earlier period. Um, I think that we have already talked about return migration to the South and how that's going to be important. Uh, I also am curious about gentrification and displacement. Folks have started to write about how gentrification changes politics in cities, uh, but they also kind of remain stuck in the cities. And I think that if we're gonna tell the story of black politics, we have to tell the story of the entering suburbs or the places where people go after they are displaced. And so either that or the book about um, what happens in the South will be the next book or they'll be the same. I don't, I hadn't figured out exactly how that's going to come together yet. I chose three cities in this book. And I think that those three cities were a good start, but somebody could come along and write this book about three medium-sized cities. You could write it about East Orange, New Jersey or Indianapolis or Oakland and I think it will be equally interesting and might yield different results. And I wanted to, because you sort of answered my my question of what are you working on next, which seems oh. to be some <laughs> some some jumping off from from this um, from this particular uh, sort of part of the research. But I also wanted to ask you a little bit more about the completion of the migration itself. You talk about how LA dropped out of the book, but was in the dissertation. um, And that you do talk a bit about sort of the completion of the migration. Can you talk about the westward move a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So the migration happens in streams, which I talk about in chapter two. And I think I have a graphic from one of my wonderful students. But generally speaking, people go in places where it's convenient to go. So you go where the train lines are, you go where highways are built. And so in the second wave of migration, 
following internment, following uh, development of the West, Black folks start to go West as well. So they go to LA, they go to Oakland, uh, they go to, they sprinkle throughout other cities in the West. And I, I want to stop for a moment and acknowledge that Black folks go all over the United States. They don't just go to these big cities. Um, but in the second wave of the migration, they go out to LA. And we think of the Great Migration as ending in 1970. Um, and I think we think of it that way because we have a return migration that picks up in 1970, where folks start coming back to the South. Uh, but folks do go out West and they go out West later, in part because it's developing later. And also in part because remember, they're going for economic opportunities. And one of the big things I found uh, that that they saw as economic opportunity was the great misfortune of internment. And and so in in terms of the sort of great migration period and the multiple waves of it, as well as the remigration, which strand of all of these sort of connected waves do you think had the largest impact on on party politics in the United States? I would say the Great Migration um, had the largest impact. The Great Migration, as I talk about it in the book, I think, and I say that because I don't, I, I think it might get um, kind of lost on folks that Black people could not participate in politics. Like technically, we could. We had the constitutional right to do so, but we had to know how many bubbles were in a bar of soap, or we might have had to like have some physical harm come our way if we wanted to participate in politics. And the North was not perfect by any means, but at least we could vote. And I think that just that initial participation in politics and folks having to reckon with that and figure out how they would deal with it, whether they would mobilize Black people or demobilize Black people is a really big deal. And I think everything that follows from the Great Migration um, owes kind of at least a nod to it. We can't think about the importance of return migration without first thinking about the Great Migration. We can't think about what the what gentrification of cities is going to do to the shape of city councils in big cities without thinking about the Great Migration. We can't think about displacement without like, I think all the things point back to this massive movement of Black folks out of the South. And you have this beautiful image on the cover of your book from Jacob Lawrence, um, the migration series, and it's particular in the North, they had the freedom to vote. Um, and this is a really interesting image of in uh, individuals standing in line to vote. Um, and I think it captures, as you say, that this is really about not only economic opportunity, obviously, but also about the freedom um, that African-Americans were pursuing as they moved into some of these cities. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I think the only thing that I will point out is there's a, a, a officer in this photo as well. And so they have the freedom to vote, but that freedom is complicated, um, as I think we've discussed over the past few minutes. And I think it's, they have the freedom to vote, but they don't always have the freedom to do what they want to do in that voting. And so I think it's great that these folks are lined up and that they can participate. And obviously I love the great migration and its impact on politics, but I kind of get stressed out about and always have in the back of my mind, 
the folks who kind of didn't let black people participate fully. Uh, and I always wonder about, you know, what politics would look like if we really had honest partners who let us participate in the same ways that white people did. And so the next the next book may be a continuation of this. Yeah. So the next book is a, a number of ideas in my head and in my notebook. Uh, I think that the next book will be about displacement politics. And I think that the next book wants to talk about what happens to citizens who are displaced and whether they participate in politics in their new homes because they are moving in the same ways, moving not in the same ways as folks in the in the Great Migration, uh, but they're moving. And those movements will have impacts on entering suburbs. And so I think when we think about uh, urban or when we think about Blackness, we think about it as associated with the inner city. But it, it is not so much that anymore. So I'm curious about that. But I think the direct descendant of this book will be a book about politics in the South and how the South changes as return migration happens and how the South might be reshaped by individuals who are similar in their characteristics as the folks who went north during the Great Migration. And so I'm just reading widely and we'll see where I land, but I'm thinking that the displacement book will probably be first. Well, I hope that you'll come and speak with me on the New Books Network about it when you finish it. Absolutely. Great. Um, Today, I've been joined by Kenesha Grant, um, the author of The Great Migration and the Democratic Party, Black Voters and the Realignment of American Politics in the 20th Century, published in 2020 by Temple University Press. I assume one can purchase this at Temple University Press website and all the other places online. Yes. Any other brick and mortar stores you want to give a shout out to, please feel free. Um, I know people are trying to keep their independent booksellers in business during the pandemic. Um, So thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.